What's up? This is Brent Rollins. You are listening to Fly Fidelity with Luke Bailey. Peep. Peep, peep, peep. First I say, what we're going to do. Then you say, I don't know. What do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do. I have an idea. You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. <laughs> Fly Fidelity, credible content for incredible times. Welcome to episode 29, featuring special guest Brent Rollins. On this episode, we talk about his incredible legacy, which includes designing logos for socially conscious cinema classics, creating some of the most visionary album covers of all time, working with Ego Trip. And of course, working with Complex. Enjoy this conversation. When you were starting to design as a teenager, what would have been your touchstone early influences that made you want to be a graphic designer? What made me want to be a graphic designer? Man, that's a, okay. That's, you're starting off with like a, <laughs> quite a question, man. Dang. Um, yeah, man. You know, I mean, there's a lot of influences. I mean, the primary influence was probably my father. I would say that, like, because my father was an artist and a graphic designer and a very uh, accomplished sort of artistic renaissance man. So he exposed me to a lot of different things, but he also exposed me to the concept of graphic design because, you know, this is pre-computer and there were, um, among my father's arsenal of things, were books, you know, like typography books and and design uh, annuals and that sort of stuff. So um, I was already familiarized with the idea of graphic design as a child. Um, you know, your early my earliest expression of that is really or, or creativity is really just being, uh, uh, you know, to draw and do illustrations. And, and uh, I was an only child. Oh, technically, I'm an only child. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that you do to, to keep yourself occupied is to draw and do those kinds of things. And um, I would say that my father was probably the earliest inspiration for that, just in terms of, you know, exposing me to that world. Uh, yeah. There's a deep family roots, isn't there, in this uh, Los Angeles cultural heritage we're talking about that links to your dad and his uh, role as an artist himself. What, what, is, what is it you remember your dad teaching you about design and art back then? Um, well, you know, it's like, it's the kind of thing you sort of take in just by observation, right? Right. Um, so, you know, you just, you, 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 you know, as children, you kind of mimic, I think what your, your parents do, or, or maybe some people, some kids do. And so, um, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, well, not remember, but I have proof of it was when I was like six years old, I just used to draw these illustrations of like these cartoon characters that were on like a. A, it's not Kool-Aid, but it was like this kind of like ready pre-made mix 
for beverages, you know, for, and it was like, uh, they had like a strawberry character and a grape character and all that sort of stuff. Right. They were all cartoons, but I just drew them, you know, just cause that's what I did as a, as a child when I was maybe like five or six or something like that. And my father actually used that illustration for the cover of a, an arts magazine that he was art directing at the time, you know, I think cause the article was probably about like children's theater or something like that. So he used my drawing. Nice. Uh, on the cover, yeah. So to see something uh, that you illustrated and then it's printed, um, you know, I, it's funny because I, I haven't thought really thought about that until you, you brought this up to me. So, um, yeah, no, it's 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 kind of kind of interesting that way. It's got to be quite affirming at that age, being as young as you are, you know, having your work presented and featured on a platform like that. You came up designing a logo for Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues, but your relationship with his filmography, it stretches back, doesn't it, to an earlier Spike Lee joint. What's the story behind you appearing on the cover of Do The Right Film poster? <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, I was on the, the uh, yeah, I was in the Do The my, my feet are the Air Jordans uh, in the top uh, right corner. That's right. Uh, of the of the film poster, and I um, I appeared in that as well as a couple of friends because a good friend of mine, his sister, was cast uh, Spike Lee's casting director. So she uh. had started casting his films after the beginning with School Days, right? And right. this was in Los Angeles. Her name was Robbie Reed, and so my friend Duran, you know, my friend was Duran Reed, and and uh, when. Do the right thing. When it was time for do the right thing to work on their promotional materials, they actually shot. Even though I was living in Los Angeles at the time, the poster and promotional material materials, excuse me, were were photographed in Los Angeles. So um, they just needed some some kids of appropriate age to uh, to basically model in these in this poster. So there's also promotional materials where it's kind of like recreating like the the pizza shop. And we're in the window, kind of like, you know, there's photographs of like Spike Lee and Danny Aiello sitting at a table. And they're like, we're in the window yelling at yelling, you know, through the window and stuff. Mm -hmm. But we were just there as like, you know, essentially like extras. Right. Um, yeah. And we shot this um, at on the Universal Studios uh, backlot. Ah. Yeah. Which was very interesting. And, uh, you know, there's a backlot that's kind of I think it, it's, it's a backlot that looks a lot like a, like sort of brownstone era areas of uh, New York City or Brooklyn and all that kind of stuff. And so that's where we shot it. And um, while I was there, I was already interested in graphic design um, and I was taking classes in high school and I met the art director uh, and I just kind of told him, like, hey, this is what I want to do because I was taking classes at, you know, uh, you know, I was in the journalism de department in high school and all that. So I was kind of learning my chops like that. And I said, Hey man, this is what I want to do. And so he gave me the opportunity to be an intern, uh, and kind of work on logos and stuff. So that's how I, but that's, but, but, but getting back to just like do the right thing. Like that's, that's how I ended up being in that poster. Do the right thing is astonishing, declares Newsweek. Trust me. Monkey, the last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. You laugh as you laughed when Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor touched a raw nerve. Ah! It pulses with humor, movement, sexuality, and music, says Rolling Stone. Are you the man? Are you the man? No, you the man. Are you the man? Siskel and Ebert give it two thumbs up, and the New York Times calls it fabulous. Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, rated R. How do you think Ruth Carter informed your relationship with how design works communicatively and how it should take into account human behavior? 
Huh, that's interesting. Um, I'm gonna try it. I can't speak for her, but I'm gonna right. see if I can extract ex extract something from that. What I do recall um, was that, you know, Spike Lee, and again, I can't speak for him, but he was very interested in the idea of creating trends. Mm. You know, not 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 just uh, to create film and to create uh, or to present uh, these experiences and the storytelling but to create a world. And there are things, his interest was to, you know, you got to remember, like at that time, that was also a very um, cultural explosion, I think, mm. going on uh, in hip hop and by that, by extension, uh, New York City at that time, right? And so everything at that, during that era, I mean, I'm not saying that things aren't the same way, but particularly during that era in the sort of like nascent stage, people are wanting to create new things and see if they kind of catch on, right? So I think the goal for some of the fashion was to hyper stylize whatever was going on at that time and to see if they can create different sort of things and trends for people to catch on to. If you watch the Do the Right Thing movie, there's this kind of like hand, uh, not even a handshake, but they kind of, whenever they greet people, they kind of do this sort of like hand motion together to each other. Right. And I think that was like Spike Lee's kind of a, a attempt to kind of create a trend. It didn't catch on, um, but it becomes this very stylistic sort of memorable thing in the same way that, that uh, Ruth Carter's costuming, one of the trends that they wanted to try was um, having double colored socks. So you know, we were wearing these very thick, uh, I forgot the name of the brand at the time. It was just really, I actually ended up buying them, you know, when I was like 19 or whatever, because they were just really comfortable, these really thick weave socks. Nice. But the idea of like wearing like, uh, sl yeah, slouchy kind of thick weave socks, but wearing two of them. So there was like different colors and stuff like that, um, like kind of layering the socks. And even though you're wearing shorts, right? Or the idea of like bugging out and the way that they would put the uh, sort of woven red, black, and green friendship bracelet tied between the uh you know on the on the on the air jordans like like all these little stylistic things that they wanted to create this world hopefully with the idea of like uh influencing people um like stylistically and stuff um but yeah that was that was that was their kind of like uh concern at the time wake up Wake up, wake up, wake up. Up you wake, up you wake, up you wake, up you wake. This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy, your voice of choice. The world's only 12-hour strong man on the air. Here on We Love Radio 108 FM. The last on your dial, but first in your hearts. And that's the truth, Ruth. Here I am. Am I here? You know it. It, you know. This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy doing the nasty to your ears, your ears to the nasty. Eyes only play the platters that matter, the matters they platter. And that's the truth. Root. Well, my, uh, I just want to clarify. My relationship, it's like, it's funny because people, there's a lot of uh, people extrapolate things from the internet. Right. And they want to simplify things and there's not a lot of fact checking that goes on these days, you know, so people sort of find things and they don't, don't, don't verify things. I didn't do, do the right thing, but I was involved in, I was an extra in the poster through that poster. That's how I got to meet the art director from the art director. I got to be, uh, I got the opportunity to create some explorations for other films that this art director was, uh, proposing for other films. So from that, the next film was Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues, and among the explorations that I created 
for the film poster was one of the logos that I designed that ended up getting selected. Mm. And of course, you're responsible for designing the logo for Boys in a Hood as well. Yeah. How does that come about? I was friends with this was it's an interesting period because this was I was still in Los Angeles. This is 3000 miles away from New York City, although, you know, like I used to come out to New York City prior to moving here because uh, I had family and stuff. But, you know, most of my formative years were in Los Angeles and I ended up spending a lot of time uh, hanging out at the University of Southern California, USC, which is where John Singleton was going to school. Our mutual friend, who was also the friend who introduced me to Duran Reed, whose sister was the one who worked for casting, um, worked for Spike Lee, casting for him. Um, you know, just a mutual friend, uh, my friend Keith Davis. Uh, I would just go hang out with him at USC because it was much closer to where I lived um, versus the college that I was going to at the time. And so I got to meet John Singleton as an undergraduate, uh, maybe during his last year or two. Uh, in school, and we became friends because of uh, a connection to film, because my father, in, in addition to being an artist, was, uh, had, you know, he had had a history uh, attempting, well, well I don't want to say, I, I don't want to put it like that, he had, he had a spotty history within the film industry. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, so whatever sort of mentoring or information that he could provide for John, as an example, you know, John sort of appreciated that. So there was, you know, this is living in Los Angeles. I'm not saying that everyone is connected to Hollywood, but I just happened to have that, right? right? And so, yeah, so we became, you know, so myself and, and uh, Duran and, and, you know, and our friend Keith, we were, we were friends with John and just helped him out, um, uh, you know, working on his independent films, his student films, because we were affected by... The uh, the idea, the idea and the impact that Spike Lee had at the time was another expression of like hip hop culture, another expression of uh, black popular culture. Um, and, you know, I don't rap, I don't DJ and all that kind of stuff. So like this was an avenue that I could sort of uh, participate in. Right. Right. And so just, um, you know, and, and, and John being a storyteller sort of felt the same way, right? So um, we bonded over that, and that's how I got to know John was in school. And he, uh, when he graduated, he uh, was fortunate, talented enough, however you want to look at it, um, to get uh, attention for his script, right, for Boys in the Hood. And so um, fresh out of school, pretty much, I think there was this... Um, there was probably a search or this was on people's radar as far as like Spike Lee's films being inexpensive to produce and yet probably generating 10, 12 times, uh, you know, what they cost. And so I think right. that even if it's like, even if it only generated, let's say $50 million, not only, but $50 million on a $3 million movie or a $6 million movie, that's a pretty good investment, Right. So I think that they were financially just looking for other sort of uh, avenues to, um, to or other other uh, voices and create, you know, to other voices. Sorry, this is where I said I'm, I stutter a little bit. Um, just looking for other voices to to sort of add to the filmmaking canon. What about that president? Speaking of other voices, I mean, you mm -hmm. create these logos at a time which is 
you know, as such an important time capsule in history, do you ever take time to pause and reflect on the significance of creating these titles? You made these in such a creative explosion, you know, they reshaped the, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, you're doing your homework, all right? <laughs> Thank you, man. But, you know, yeah. these these are important, like I say, um, at this moment in history. I mean, do you ever pause yeah. to reflect on that and, and look back at what you've done? How does Dead Presidents come about specifically? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, yeah, man, it's crazy because, I mean, there's the idea of like, oh, man, in the future, this will have some impact or something. And you kind of hope that, but you never know it, right? Right. And, um that was another sort of, uh, you know, well, uh, let me just, let me comment on that. I think that just, um, you, you do things, you try to make your impact and then it's really just in the hands of the collaborators and the audience about what sort of stature that piece of art, uh, yields. Right. right. Um, and so, um, looking back on things now, um, it's funny because when I was younger, I would say that like, there's a sorry, there's Brooklyn's outside. If you can hear the sirens, um, I when I was younger, I encourage you open the windows, <laughs> <laughs> keep it real. Um, when you know, when I was younger, it was a little bit funny to me for some people sometimes to introduce me as like, Oh, this is Brent, he did the Boys in the Hood logo or something like that. Not that it wasn't something to be proud of, but it was just also like, you know, it's a little bit of you know, I do other things, right? But, um, number one, I don't think, um Saul Bass would be embarrassed by someone saying like, this is Saul, Saul Bass. He did, you know, the AT&T logo, or this is Milton Glaser. He did the I love New York logo. I don't think there would be anything to be embarrassed about is boys in the hood on the same level of that. No, but yeah, you know, it actually, I think over time it's taken on this, um, this aura or this thing that, um, it has a, a, it has a cultural standing. And I think that that's something that maybe I was initially, um, uh, not shy about, but you know, it's like I said, there's other things that I want to be known for, but at the same time, I'm very proud of it. And the fact that that movie has, um, has withstood the test of time. And, and, you know, I will say this, I don't walk around and see people wearing bootleg, do the right thing. T-shirts. I see people wearing boys in the hood logos. Mm. So, um, what does that mean? It means that it really impacts people. You know, it's, it's culturally significant. Mm. And, um, that's something that's really interesting to try to sink in is to, to, to know that like, you know, to think that like I've created or I was, I had a hand in creating something that has a significant impact in the same way, in a similar way rather than like, I love New York or something like that. Like people it's, it's recognizable. Right. right. And um, regardless of maybe how I feel about it, even now, like perhaps it was a bit of a naive design or whatever the hell it is. People know it, man. And, and mm. uh, I'm I'm very proud of that. Legendary. Well, speaking of New York, New York is known for being a city of signs. You know, as a graphic designer, you're walking out and you're seeing typography and messages. They're everywhere. Right. It's often mm -hmm. described as being the closest medium to painting, but with words. Are there ever any challenges that come with visualizing typography for projects? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's difficult because, look, like, P 
people want a logo to mean everything, right? right? And um, number one, a logo is as meaningful as whatever it's supposed to represent, right? So um, it's the same way as like a flag, you know, if the country isn't really bringing it, then it doesn't matter like what your flag looks like because no one's going to pay attention to it. Right. And so a logo, oftentimes people want the logo to be all things to all people and they want it to have all this symbolism and all this kind of stuff. And it's just one sort of tool in people's kind of uh, arsenal. Right. And, and people, um, yeah, it depends on what the it depends on what it represents, yeah. you know, um, and it can only be as good as what it represents. And that's just the beginning of it. So the challenge is to try to distill is to try to, like, take whatever the project is and try to understand, like, what it what is it really about? And and what is the one thing that maybe people can latch on to? Because the logo is really shorthand for for whatever the whatever it's supposed to represent, you know, and. That really depends on how strong the product is, man. You know, like you can, I mean, you can come up with some really cool logos, but like, and and there are things that people maybe appreciate from a, like a design head sort of like standpoint. But it's like I said, I think the Boys in the Hood logo, as an example, is it has its it has distinctive qualities. What I do it now, I don't know, but because of where that movie is placed in history and the way people feel about it, um. And the fact that it is distinctive, at least, you know, um, it, it, it creates its own sort of sort of thing. Talk to me about transitioning from film to music and being responsible for how Rap Pages looked as an art director. When does Rap Pages come into the picture? Um, Rap Pages came into the picture right. Did it happen while I was doing Boys in the Hood or after? I can't remember, but I do recall having. Mo Better Blues logo in my portfolio when I showed it to the editor in chief, right. Sheena Leslie. Yeah, and um, Rap Pages came in the picture. Yeah, I, I, I had had a house party, or myself and my roommate, and we had some friends who also lived downstairs in the apartment uh, complex that I lived. And we just, you know, we wanted to have a, a backyard party, and we had a bunch of people kind of show up. And yeah, so Sheena Lester, who was the editor in chief of Rap Pages and who was a wonderful human being, she was at the party among a few other people, which was kind of cool at the time. We had like Micah Nine from Freestyle Fellowship um, performing in the backyard. And I feel like, I feel like, here's, here's my problem. I wasn't, I have to admit that I wasn't completely hip to them. I feel like Bad Brains was in our fucking backyard as well. Right. So, yeah, because um, I remember there was these dreads playing like hardcore, uh, and, and I'm and I'm not, I, I can't, I, you know, I can't verify. That. Actually, I could verify that, but um, actually, no, I couldn't verify that. But I feel like that <laughs> played in our backyard as well too, um, which would be cool. It's a legend. Um, which is interesting, just touching on that point, which is interesting because, of course, you know, Sasha does collaborate with Bat Brings later on for the White Mandingos project. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. But you know, I didn't I didn't I never asked Sasha, I never met, I never asked Daryl Jennifer um if you're like, yeah, were you ever like in a backyard party in Los Angeles? Like I never <laughs> asked him. I think it actually like occurred to me at the time, but like there's is there's a high probability of that. Um right. But uh yeah, that's that's how I got into it. And and I think at the time is because I was doing movie logos and I actually hated dealing with Hollywood. I don't I didn't like 
the sort of, you know, I was young and uh, idealistic and naive, and I did not like dealing with movie studios, even though they paid very well to, uh, to develop stuff. Um, it's a, you know, it was, it's a very tough industry. So I, but I did want some creative freedom and I loved hip hop. And there was a part of me that felt like, well, if I get into doing magazines then I'll probably meet artists and, you know, I can approach them about doing album covers and stuff. And that was my attraction to, um, to going to work for, for rap pages and working for Larry Flynn. It's also where you met Jeff Chan, isn't it? He introduces you to Soul Sides, and you later became a art director for Quantum Projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so Jeff was uh, one of the freelancers. I mean, it was great. It was a great period because a lot of people that are, um, you know, a lot, you know, so like the early days of people and, and and getting involved. And and again, if you're not a rapper or an you know a DJ or those like immediate sort of like yeah. um, culture creators. You're looking for other ways to participate in, in this culture that you're interested in. So, you know, like uh, Joseph Patel, like Jasbo, you know, he was a writer at the time. He's the one that just produced that uh, Summer of Soul movie with um, with Questlove. Right, right, right. And, you know, he was down with Soul Sides back then, you know. Um, and, yeah, yeah. Jeff Chang, uh, who is a, you know, sort of important sort of cultural sort of commentator and, and critic, you know, was managing Soul Sides at the time. Uh, or as he would probably say, he was probably attempting to manage, <laughs> uh, you know, soul sides at the time. But he was also doing freelance writing, so he was the he was the writer for uh, when we did an article on the Far Side for their second album. And yeah, and so um, that was like an actual like photo shoot that I think that I got a really good sense of like trying to think about how to present. Um, musical acts in, 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 in a sort of iconic way or as much as I could, you know, so we kind of tied them up with recording tape and really kind of getting my sort of Esquire magazine, George Lois sort of vibe going. But, um, Jeff really liked the photographs and he was impressed by it or not, I'm sorry, not the photographs, but just the art direction in general. And, um, because he was working with shadow and black delicious and Latirix. You know, he was like, hey, I've got some, you know, friends from the Bay Area that I work with and, you know, they've got a EP coming out and, um, you know, would you be interested in, in, in doing this stuff? So myself, along with uh, Brian Cross, you know, B plus um, who that was also his he was, uh, you know, he's a pretty significant photographer in the sphere as well. And Brian was the photo editor. And so that's how I got that's that was the beginning of my relationship with with B plus. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's how we got started. You mentioned Black Alicious. What are your fondest memories of collabing with the late, great Gift of Gab? Um, man, Gab was such a really sweet dude. Um, really good guy. Yeah. Um, you know, because they're in the Bay Area, which was about 500 miles away from Los Angeles, I never, I didn't hang out with them. But, you know, I would have phone calls with them and um, whenever they would be in town, particularly when I was in New York, I would, you know, sometimes I would see them sometimes um, kind of hang out when they were doing their touring and stuff. But um, I didn't deal directly with Gab. I dealt with uh, Xavier, with Chief Excel, okay. um, um, more often than not. But um, but Gab was also just a really good, really good, just a good hearted dude, you know, and um, as I've said to other people, um, just thinking about him and now that he's no longer with us, 
I was really inspired by him because, you know, uh, a few years ago uh, I was in, in the Bay Area and um, Excel was, uh, I was hanging out with him and I knew that Gab had, um, you know, he was his health wasn't the, the greatest and, you know, when he would be going on tour, he would have to do di- dialysis and all this other kind of stuff. And yet the dude was still kind of doing it. He's, it's almost mm. like, yeah, like what, what else am I going to do, right? And so even though he was dealing with this uh, condition, he never, uh, you know, he never let it, let that kind of keep him from sort of his, his, his passion. He always had you this know? constant curiosity for digging deeper as well. He always wanted to elevate his craft as well as himself as a person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's, he's is- just a very, very solid, yeah. like I said, very solid, good-hearted dude, you know. such a foundational moment for you in terms of you honing your style and and finding your identity what can you tell me about the significance of creating nia well nia came along i forget what is it 97 98 or it's 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 around this time where i've kind of started kind of getting a particular sort of style and it was sort of instrumental in me sort of piecing that thing together um i I, prior to that, I was a bit of a chameleon, you know, like, it's like, it's like kind of like the idea of like going out into the world and learning different sort of like techniques, like different sort of like samurai techniques or different fighting techniques. Right. So I, I, you know, I wanted to learn, I I would be able to like mimic other kinds of designers and kind of learn their languages and stuff like that. Just because, you know, like you, you, you mimic people to, to learn, right. And hopefully you eventually try to develop your voice, right? So I started kind of figuring out like what the approach is that I like and the sort of the feel that I that that I'm attracted to, because um, I feel that like emotion and and mm. is very important in in uh, in art, right? So I, I you know in some ways I'm a graphic designer, in some ways I'm a graphic artist. And what's the difference? The designer is like solving a problem and an artist is really just sort of expressing themselves, right? And um, my, the medium happens to be through through graphics. So I'm a little bit of, of both of those things. So I want to express myself, but I also want to solve a problem. And I think the problem solving is about communicating with people. And communicating with people means finding shared ground. And finding shared ground means like saying like, okay, what is what are the things that emotively uh, resonate with people? So um during that period was also when um i had moved to new york and and kind of creating this kind of pasted you know cut and paste do i want you know do it yourself kind of language with ego trip which you know uh which was an independent zine that had existed right and so in in working on the magazine and developing this idea of like well this is all we got let's like let's like uh let's sample this right uh, image, image wise. I mean, we would sample everything. We would like Ego Trip as a collective. Like we would sample lang- like uh, uh, lyrics within within the articles. We would like quote lyrics in the context of, of the article, not 
you know, uh, I can't think of anything specific, but just like as you're reading it, like we'll quote an article and to tell the story, right? So, um, and also we would do kind of like fake ego trip ads, which were essentially like memes and, and find images and pair them with, with appropriately funny, uh, lyrics. And so that kind of idea of just sort of like what's out there, let's kind of, uh, let me kind of recontextualize it. That was what part of my creative development at the time, because like I didn't have a distinctive, uh, visual, cue or distinctive visual language, right? Like I can draw, but I was never happy with my drawing. The design that I did or, or the album covers that I had done were kind of referencing at various times, like, um, like hypnosis, which we were doing all the kind of like classic rock, co rock covers from the seventies, right. or there's the sort of iconography that like, again, I was saying like George Lois, who was doing Esquire magazine, uh, in the sixties did, which was like kind of these very strong singular conceptual images. So I knew I liked that and I liked a certain kind of execution in terms of like the image creation, but like I was still trying to find like my voice for things. And so, uh, ego trip gave me that opportunity to sort of experiment and, and, and grow and expand and sort of play with uh, the scanner and all that other kind of stuff. And at the same time, Blackalicious uh, uh, Xavier had reached out to me about doing an album cover. And I think because I was getting more familiarized and more versed in doing these kind of cut and paste collages, um, that was one thing. And then the really most important thing was he approached me. He said, I want you to do something that other people won't let you do. And I think once you give people that confidence, mm and freedom, then I was like, Oh, cool. I want to try something. You know, it's like, it, it, it's, it's like, it's, it's an interesting challenge that you, if you're creative, you not only get excited by it, but then you actually, your brain starts working because it sounds like a great opportunity. Some people might get scared of that opportunity. Some people might be, uh, they might not push themselves or whatever, but that was such a cool thing to say like, Hey man, do whatever you want to do. Do something that no one's let you do before. Man, that was just the best direction I ever got. What about working with Blackstar? How did a chance to work with Blackstar come about? Um, the chest for Blackstar uh, actually also was sort of a byproduct of, byproduct of being at Ego Trip. Um, I wasn't planning necessarily to be working on hip hop or any kind of album covers when I moved to New York. As much as I love New York and as much as I love hip hop, I was kind of getting burnt out on doing things for clients at that time. And I, I moved to New York just to sort of be in a different place, right? right. But through friends and connections, um, you know, they kind of pull you back in. Right. So, um, at the time, uh, raucous records, which was the record label that black star was on, um, you know, we had a relationship with ego trip. So, um, you know, you're talking about a really small community, particularly in the independent world. Right. Um, and so, uh, 
this was, uh, you know, Ruckus had placed ads in Ego Trip magazine um, because they were affordable, but it was also part of the ethos and all that kind of stuff. So there was our, you know, and Sasha was 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 friends with uh, Jarrett and Brian, who yeah. were the owners of, uh, of, of Ruckus. And so there was already that relationship going on. And so I think because they had seen the work that I had been doing for Ego Trip, um, particularly, well, okay, what happened was, you know, they would they would buy ads just to kind of support us, right? Um, at one point, Ego Trip, we were so late with coming out with the next issue, but we wanted to put some, we wanted to give something to our subscribers. And so, um, as I was saying earlier, there's the this, these Ego Trip ads, which are sort of I think I, I really think these are like precursors to memes, right? Um, I'm not saying we invented the meme, but you know, we definitely uh, like stepped into that arena, right? And um, those 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 ads were really popular. Like people would always like like yo that one ad in the magazine that you guys did with the whatever I can't you know I'm not gonna name the lyrics whatever, but like people really enjoyed them. So we decided to make a an in, we decided while we were working on the next issue or maybe the last issue of the magazine. We were like, well, let's give our subscribers uh, something as a thank you for waiting for us, right? So right. we decided to make a zine of just ego trip ads because it's just yeah. finding funny, funny imagery, funny, funny images from like old Ebony magazines, or Jet magazines, or Time, or Life, or just whatever, and then just pairing them with funny, funny lyrics. So we made like a black and white zine of like maybe uh, eight to 10, 12 pages. I can't remember. And um, we, uh, oh, sorry, it's okay. Excuse me. Um, and then we, um, you know, we sent it out to subscribers, like a little limited edition thing. And like I made a cover that was at the time I was really influenced by a lot of 70s, like album covers and stuff like that. And so I just made this uh, graphic, you know, I made this cover for, for the zine. It was called the After Dark Special. And that was another opportunity for me to kind of flex my creative muscles. And let me just do some stuff that I think it looks looks cool. And um Ruckus bought a back page ad on the zine, you know, like probably like 200 bucks or something. It just helped us cover the cost of printing it. Um, right. But, um, you know, when they saw it, you know, they, the, the art director uh, who was at, at Ruckus, uh, Tim, Tim Ronan, probably it was either between Tim and maybe Jared and Brian. I can't I don't know the exact uh, genesis of the thing. Sure. They were like, well, you know, they reached out and they were like, well, you know, you know, we've got this this album, this Black Star album coming out. And we want to do something that's in the vein of like a reggae album cover. Um, and so I think that based off of the graphics that I had done for the cover of the Ego Trip zine, of the After Dark special zine, that was uh, enough confidence for them to, to reach out to me. So um, I didn't know most. I didn't know Talib back then. Um, I had met uh, most through a whole different set of circumstances prior you'd kind of see people around and stuff like that. I didn't know Talib then, but I got to know Talib probably a little bit more like after the album cover. Um, but uh, I never really, I never dealt with them directly. You know, it was more like it was an assignment and, and uh, there was already sort of existing photography and stuff like that. So, but it was about just like, okay, well, what kind of like story do I want to take? And that's, that was for me, it's fun because it's not, it's, it's the opportunity to make something uh, on the fly in the sense of like doing collage is just like, okay, what do I got? You know, it's kind of like if you're, you know, you open your refrigerator and like, you know, you're hungry, like, okay, what do I have to eat? Okay. I got some potatoes. I got some this, I got that, whatever. Like, okay, what can I make? 
you know, versus like, I want to make something and I'm going to go out and buy this and I'm going to get that and I'm going to get, you know, versus the very being very deliberate about something. It was more like the it's the closest thing that like being a designer can get to being spontaneous. You know, like as right. a musician, you can like make music like immediately. Right. Um, as an artist, you can paint immediately. But like as a designer, it's like, well, what do I do? You know, like everything designed is very thought out and premeditated. And so, um, but to create collages is still an artistic sort of thing, right? And so it was like, okay, well, let me, you know, let me just see what kind of elements exist and, and that they've already shot. Um, and then let me sort of uh, kind of pair it with maybe some other things that I can kind of just find um, from other sort of printed sources and then I'll, I'll make something. So when you start to approach a new project, regardless of whatever the medium is you're creating, what's, what's your first consideration? What's your launching point? It starts with an idea, right? Yeah, you know, it depends on what the project is because a lot of times I haven't been assigned things or I haven't gotten projects and, and, and for, for album covers, for instance, where the music actually exists. You know, like more often than not, I haven't had a chance to preview anything. So, so it's, yeah, you know, I mean, ideally it would be like, Hey, listen to this and vibe out and, and whatever. I'm not saying that it hasn't happened, but more often than not, it doesn't. So it becomes like, well, what is the artist about or what is the project about? And then is it something that I can kind of, you know, what, what are they thinking about it? And, you know, for, for musicians more often than not, that's the last thing that they're thinking about because they're just really focused on creating the music. Um, and so it's my job to think in terms of a fan, right? I think if, if, if the artist already has an established sort of uh, presence, then that's sort of one way to, 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 to approach it. So I can say, okay, well, we can continue what you've done or we can sort of go left and, and um, sort of surprise people. You know, if it, but if it's for people that haven't really had a lot of exposure or, you know, maybe for people that have put stuff out, but they haven't developed an identity, then uh, I will, that's where the designer sort of problem solving comes in. And I'll be like, okay, I think you guys need to be this, right? right. Or, or, you know, you've got a great name. Let's figure something out. Like with dilated peoples, right? there's a name and there's, you know, there's all kinds of things we could do. And, um, during the development of that, you know, kind of landed on this, this character, this, this figure. And, um, that became their identity. They don't have a, a word mark. They don't have like a, a necessarily a, a, a text based logo. Their, their logo is an icon. Right. And I think that like there was, you know, uh, I don't want to say apprehension, but it's just that like, you know, you're, you're thinking like when we come out, we want people to know our name. Right. And instead people know the symbol. Right. And and to the point where they felt increasingly comfortable, like, yeah, we don't even need to have a, a, a written logo like people know this little guy. And that becomes that becomes the representative for us, you know. And so that became a thing where it's like they needed an identity. And, it, you know, that became uh, the most it's an easy way for people to uh, remember them. It's one right. of the all-time great hip-hop logos, I think, that dilated people's, like you say, logo. Says so much and doesn't have to say much at all itself. Oh, man, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's really one of the sharpest logos out there. Um, speaking of sharp designs, what can you tell yeah, me man. about the thought process behind this brand-new Evidence album, Unlearned Volume 1? It's one of the best uh, 
certainly I've, i feel like it's again another landmark in your career is it really i feel so i feel so i feel like you're leaning to a talk to me brother i feel like as you leaning into a different territory i feel like there's a, a real calculated decision behind making this album cover and i think it shines and stands on its own terms as one of your best huh that's that's very interesting what was your reaction when you saw it I, it had me thinking it provoked me to think about what was going on in the cover and mm-hmm. if or not that was a reflection to the music if how how much that lent itself to influencing you communicating this idea but it's interesting mm-hmm. because you say you you don't listen to much music you don't hear much music prior to making these covers what was the approach for this project um well you know ev had reached out to me after you know i hadn't worked on his album any of his solo album covers right right and um, not no, no shade or anything like that. I just hadn't hadn't worked on it. I was also I had a full time gig working at Complex and probably doing other things. Right. So I wasn't able to do those things. But um, he was like, yeah, I, I you know for whatever his uh, reasons were, he decided to reach out to me. Um, and I think it was because he was at his own particular crossroads, and um, everything that he was maybe premeditated and trying to do he was saying that like you know nothing is coming out the way that i thought that they would be and so that's sort of an interesting sort of standpoint from a from a um from a commissioning sort of point of view and um i think you know it was a combination of timing because i'm available to work on things Uh, i have a good relationship with those guys and but I think it kind of goes back to like, hey, I want to do something different, mm-hmm. you know. And when people, when you're when you're collaborating with people, that's a very empowering thing to be like, I want to do something different. And you know, because it's very it, it's it's very easy to just go with something that 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 people know, and it's very easy, you know. But when you see something different, idea is not different for the sake of being different. You know, it's different for him. Right. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, because he, he's cultivated the, this kind of um, well, his, his his covers have always kind of had these sort of this sort of lonely narrative. Singular, yeah. Right. And it's a different he was going through a different process and he was going through different things in his life. And, you know, similarly, I was going through different things in my life. Um, it doesn't mean that what we're doing is this complete sort of Dr. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of kind of uh, transformation. No. But there's a, a an opportunity to think about like, well, what's something that I haven't done, or or how would I approach this differently? So that was the beginning of things, and you know, talking about uh, unlearning as the theme of the album, and about sort of uh, having to improvise or to sort of change course. Rewire. Um, became- yeah, to sort of to rewire was was very interesting, and um, you know it's funny now that I'm thinking about it. I don't really. I'm, I'm trying to recall, and it'll probably come up later. Like exactly like how this conversation came up with the puzzles, but it was. I guess ultimately, it's like this is a puzzle. Like how do I figure out like how to express this idea? Mm. You know, and you know for me the challenge was also not that you know not that stylistically anyone could have been able to tell but it's like this is the second project that i did for rhyme Sayers, and the previous one was the freeway and uh jake one 
um, stimulus package, which incredible, incredible. And thank you. Um, that's a lot to live up to, you know. Yeah, it's a lot um, of pressure. Yeah, even though it's, even though it wasn't, you know, it was just like I I was I felt like if I'm going to follow up something that I've done for this particular record label, it needs to be something that people, you know, they're coming to me for a particular reason, right? Right. And uh, you know, not only because it was not only was it Ev, but it was also Rhyme Sayers, and it's like they're they're going to expect me to do something different, right? Um, and so I didn't. It wasn't like a, the pressure, but it was it was an interesting. It was like a challenge. And, um, the idea of, uh, I mean, I can't, you know, I'd have to go through my archives to just see if what other sort of sketches or ideas were happening, but, you know, me and Ev talked back and forth about like, what if we do this or what if we do that? And, um, yeah, I can't recall any of the things that maybe we didn't like. Um, but we came upon the puzzle idea relatively early. He was very like open to be like, you know, uh, you know, what do you think or whatever and whatever. And, um, by the time I kind of got excited by the puzzle idea, he wasn't a hundred percent certain exactly what it meant or, you know, how it was going to be realized. But then I think he, there was an, also an album cover and I'm sorry that I can't remember the name of the artist. There's an out, there was a, there's a, there's a sort of, um, vibraphonist, uh, artist that he had this one, uh, album cover and it was cool that it's like it was this time-lapse sort of multi-exposure image image of this guy playing xylophones Hmm. it's actually on the cover of the album uh it's it's a small little record that's in the corner uh, on the floor of uh, of the unlearning album and so that's kind of like a little easter egg reference but that was kind of like the beginning of like okay well how do we express this idea of someone doing like multiple things and trying out different stuff and 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 whatever and you know the idea of like Usually a puzzle, for instance, presents like one image, right? And so the idea of showing this person in the process of trying out different things um, was interesting. I didn't want to just do like a simple time lapse of just kind of multi-layers of stuff because it's not that that wasn't uh, a sufficient sort of solution, but it didn't have the right additional layer or the addition, uh, the sort of like, aha, like a, or the, oh, you know, the, the cleverness or whatever. Mm. And that's a hard thing to kind of like hold yourself to because like you don't want to feel like you're being too clever. Um, but there's definitely like I, I need it to be somewhat clever. Right. And so I think the puzzle idea, the idea of like it's a puzzle and, that represents and, and displays different moments in time. Like what's the actual right? Uh, what's the final image a little bit like what's the actual right thing? Like does this thing fit here? Does it fit here? Whatever. And, and so the idea of like depicting his 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 creative process and trying to have things fit where they don't fit and and uh you know kind of moving around you know within his own sort of creative space that was what we kind of landed on and i don't think he even really quite grasped it until like i I had to do a couple of like sort of i tried to explain it i think he kind of understood it but he was also like he felt confident to be like Brent's getting excited about something. Right. So like, maybe I should, uh, you know, I'll, I'll indulge, not indulge that, but I'll kind of play along with that and kind of like, I, he, he just needed convincing. Right. Um, but he liked the, the sort of idea, you know? Yeah.
make it They've been waiting for their time to contemplate Dealing with latent issues Dealing with other shit that ain't coming to fold Till they went too far and they had already done so they sold It's all gangster shit they doing From the top down to the bottom floor Sea level album that feels good to hold in your hands and look at and think about so it really is a testament to that communicative art you've been making your whole career man oh man thank you um yeah it was like he was a little bit he was nervous because and i was a little bit nervous because you know like uh everything is designed for a 180 pixel by 180 pixel sort of square these days right right and that image is very dense but um the it was a little bit like, you know what, number one, okay, so screw it. People just aren't going to be able to, it's, it's not going to be in uh it's not going to be, you know, like a Tyler's Eagle album cover, right? Where it's just a fake, you know, it's not going to be that kind of quick read. Um, it's, it's, it's more complicated. And if you care, you're going to want to investigate what that cover is. You know, um, it was kind of consciously acknowledging what the state of sort of media and the way you consume information is. But kind of saying like, well, we need some things that kind of like don't necessarily have to. It's it's it is it's a consumer product, but it doesn't mean that it has to uh, conform to to today's kind of like standards. You know, it's like I think we wanted to create something that's still going to be compelling, um, despite the the limitations of things. And and if you really care about him as an artist or whatever, you know, you're going to want to pick up the the vinyl or the CD, and you'll be able to actually enjoy the cover. Uh, in detail and, and at a larger scale. So we kind of just, we went for narrative in that case versus it just being like a, the simplicity of an image. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of depth and density to this album cover for sure. Speaking of rhyme sayers and reshaping the value of an album's packaging, what was the thinking and discussion like behind Freeway's The Stimulus Package? Or should I say Freeway and Jake One? And Jake One, right. yeah. Um, yeah, that was another thing where... Um, it was exciting to be asked to kind of create something out of the box, so to speak. Like, um, rhyme Sayers had created this, had this history of doing really beautiful packaging and, and wanting and, and, you know, to, to, uh, wanting to do something different and, and, and having, creating these expectations that their packaging is going to be different, you know, not dissimilar from like Moax, right? Where all the Moax album covers were just these incredible sort of pieces of graphic art, right? Um, and, and sort of being dedicated to saying like, yeah, we'll put the extra effort and money into the packaging because that's gonna be something that differentiates us and that's something that we appreciate as vinyl connoisseurs, you know? Right. Like if you, if, you, you know, if you collect records, all the, you know, more often than not records from like the 70s, are these really fantastic, you know, not all of them, but there are some really fantastic packages that sort of emerged with that in, in terms of like trying to create something um, as an experience for uh, the uh, the audience and the artist, right? And so Rhyme Sayers uh, understands that. So to, you know, approach, you know, uh, um, Sky, who was working at Rhyme Sayers at the time, you know, I think he, he's the one that reached out to me. And I was like, yeah, we got this project coming up and, you know, we wanted to, you know, because they were familiar with stuff that I'd done before. And, you know, would you be interested in doing this album cover? And I was like, okay, sure. And, you know, the cover, the, the title alone uh, was such part of the, the zeitgeist at the time, the stimulus package. Um, and so there's already, and it, you know, it immediately kind of just conjures up the idea of, it's, of, of money. Um, and so even though money 
uh, is a cliche sort of subject within the hip hop world. The idea was just kind of lean into that. Right. Um, and how do you create something that is, um, more than, than just the cliche, right. Or, or how do we make it, or how do we take the cliche and just turn it into this really fun kind of kitsch product or whatever. And I had actually proposed one, well, the, end, the final product was actually two different ideas, and we ended up marrying them together. One was like a wallet, and the other was like the, the money, right? Right. And then we kind of figured out some kind of way, like, well, maybe we can actually put the money in the wallet, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, it doesn't quite fit exactly because it's the money sort of wraps around the wallet when you first get it, and then you're supposed to put the money in it. But if the money wraps around the wallet, that means it's larger than the wallet. So how do you right. put it in the wallet? So there's a little bit of, you know, um, so it's a little you know, it's not, it's not a perfect, uh, solution, but you know, we got it as close as we could and people like responded to it. And, and, um, you know, we, man, I gotta say, dude, I'm so mad to this day that we didn't get nominated for a Grammy because I, I gotta say that like for an independent record label to be getting the kind of like online attention that that album cover did is significant. I guess it didn't translate necessarily to sales, but in terms of conversation, like everyone was talking about it, which was kind of crazy. Worldwide shit. We all over the globe. Y'all know. Free travel from overseas, back, freeze back to each his own. I had the business since the program made us near our home. I jetted in the jet like pressure where I've flown. Back to Africa, too bad I had to leave my crew. Passport on file, condo by the now. The camera tried to follow this top model to Cairo. Retiring and they holler at the board. Yeah, some of my homelands ravished from the war. It's vital that I visit some spots out of the Bible. I'm by the Red Sea, not the Dead Sea. All tracks get destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's no matter where you at, it matters where you from. That's why I spit hood raps over African drums. You gotta rap where you from, no matter where you be. That's why I spit street raps over African beats. It don't matter where you at, it matters where you from. That's why I spit hood raps over African drums. I shut it down and leave. You mentioned Ego Trip earlier. What was your first cover? Uh, my first cover for Ego Trip was like I I I I'd come along to Ego Trip in the last three issues, right. so um, which was the Rakim cover. So this was like Rakim's first album in many 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 years. I think what was it, the R um, or the eighteenth letter, or whatever. Um, and um, we kind of got an exclusive on that because that's how Ego Trip does, man. We work behind the scenes and, and kind of politic and, and whatever. So this was uh, Rakim's first cover in many, 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 many years. And so, uh, yeah, that was the opportunity. So there's no pressure. It's his first cover in many years. How are you feeling about that as a fan? You're covering Rakim for your first issue. I mean, you know, he's one of the greats. Like, it's 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 a... It's a dope way to come out the box, you know, at least for me, you know, um, but, uh, you know, it's also just like a, it's a great person as a, as subject matter. Right. Um, so yeah, but I mean, you know, Ego Trip always had great, great people on their covers. Yeah. One of the great things that stood out about Ego Trip was that as much as editors and writers, you were very informed and critical. The magazine was as much, you know, hilarious as well with the same token. Yeah, How man, did you learn you. to navigate and balance that out, you know, as a collective between each other, man? 
Well, we all had senses of humor and, and all had kind of weird senses of humor and all were kind of, all of us felt, uh, in Sasha's words, like somewhat maladjusted socially. Um, and so Ego Trip was like our creative refuge, right? So um, that's that's that, having that sort of initial thing. Also, all the dudes are funny as hell. Like, just their knowledge of hip hop in in and also just their take on just humor and this the fact that we were always into like popular culture and all that kind of stuff it's sort of they had they were they're artists right? right there's journalism and then there's art there's writers right and those dudes are artists they they are personalities um they're they are also dedicated to the craft of journalism, right? And and they they were students of journalism in the sense of like they would read other uh, other writers. So it wasn't like that we only read uh, uh, rap journalism. They read rock journalism, you know. So they knew about you know they could talk endlessly about Lester Bangs and, and so you know there was like an appreciation for music journalism, which um, not to you know I, I will say not to sound like old man, but I will say that like there's not the same kind of thing happening now where like blogs where they're like, they really appreciate the history of, of music journalism and the sort of like the uh, structure and how to take yourself out of the story. Don't talk about, you know, like all this kind of stuff, those guys really uh, understood the mechanics of how to write a story. Um, and also had a sense, uh, a point of view and a sense of humor and were into other things. So we were all into hip hop but we were all also into uh, indie rock, punk rock, mm. you know, skating, all this, you know, movies, all of that kind of stuff. That's like uh, in the '90s, it was probably more subcultural. Like nowadays, like everyone is sort of exposed and into so many different things. But we were really invested in all those kind of things, and so we would take what we learned and what we were exposed to and try to synthesize them into something uh, creative, which was Ego Trip. And you're really revolutionary in starting that, you know, like you say, bridging those two worlds, letting them coexist over any other magazine at that time. This is something that's revolutionary and exclusive to uh, Ego Trip. It's Thank rare. You. It's rare at this time. It's not happening much. And of course, it starts prior to Ego Trip. It starts with a conception of Beatdown. What, were you familiar with Beatdown at that point? I mean, Beatdown was started by Sasha and Elliot, yeah. I think. Were you familiar? Um, yeah, I mean, there was a, uh, there were other independent zines, and independent relative to, like, the source being kind of the, the most yeah. uh, prominent magazine at the time, even though they were independent as well, but they were, you know, they had the, the most sort of newsstand presence. presence. And then uh, Rap Pages, which was not independent necessarily, was owned by Flint Publications, so, which was an established, you know, publisher, even though he's a pornographer, he's still an established crazy. <laughs> How crazy is that? Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was, that was a whole nother sort of, uh, those are other tales. You ever to talk talked to about. him? I only saw him on the elevator once. I was bugging out because I was like, yo, you know, Larry Flint, um, <laughs> he's on the elevator, you know, and he was like, yeah, what's going on? Hello, you know, um, right. he always had like a bodyguard with him and stuff. Um, right. But, you know, yeah, he's, I, you know, I big him up like he, yeah, he was a pornographer, but he was kind of a, he was definitely revolutionary. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like Vibe was 
owned by Warner Brothers, Time Warner or something like that. So right. there was all these kind of like corporate owned magazines. And then there was a uh, beat down, uh, rap sheet, uh, the flavor, but you know, there was these sort of independent sort of, uh, uh independent magazines, right. In, in, in the wake of these kind of larger, um, in air quotes, kind of corporate sort of, uh, magazines. Is there a cover that means the most for you right now on where you're at in life? Um, I wouldn't say anything specific. Each one was a different sort of voyage. So the first one, Rakim, was just like, okay, I get to um, redesign the magazine, you know, um, with a important rap icon, which was Rakim. Yeah. Um, the second cover which, that I did, which is our second to last issue, was for Gangstar, which is like, you know, royalty in, in hip hop as far yeah. as I'm concerned. You know, um, and that was an opportunity to work with Guru and Premier. And also at the time I was working on their album covers. So that was also cool. You know, like I never thought that I would get to work with one of my favorite groups of all time. Right. And and then um, the third the third issue that I worked on, which was our last issue, was with um, uh, Eric Sermon and, and uh, Redman. And yeah, with that, with, um, yeah, with, with that squad and, and, um, uh, and, and with the Bismarcky puppet as well. So, um, yeah, it was interesting. Incredible. You know, I think that, that last issue probably because it's so offbeat, the yeah. cover using the Bismarcky puppet, which was our sort of mascot, even though like he was, we adopted the puppet, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and then the fact that the puppet actually kind of recurs, in different places throughout the magazine that that last issue is probably the, the closest thing to a surrealistic uh magazine you know we used to call we used to, at a certain point we felt like we were working on albums we weren't working on a magazine mm. uh, and, and and so like albums in the sense that there's skits album in the sense that there's like recurring jokes you know and then there's like these sprawling things and it's like that that last issue became like this Man, I actually need to look back, go go back and look at it and see see how I feel about it and how I appreciate it. But we just were just like we're gonna reference, we're gonna make a joke in one place and then we're gonna reference it later on, um, somewhere else in the magazine or whatever. And it became this kind of like if you really pay attention, if you're really into that sort of thing, you kind of ping pong through through the issue and and you kind of it's a piece of art. It's like a, it's like I said, it's like an album cover because I think we wanted to creatively just push uh, the idea of journalism, you know, so I think it's, it's a little bit of a surreal magazine. Let's talk about that last issue. Can you share the impact that biz had on yourself and everybody else at ego trip? He's featured on the cover. How do yeah, you think yeah. his identity helped to shape yours? <laughs> That's a funny question. Um, well, we had the biz marquee puppet, uh, in the office. Yeah. Right. And the mascot. so again, the mascot. Yeah. So that, puppet was created for master aces me and the biz music video years earlier and um uh vicky toback 
who was down with Ego Trip at the time, who's the one responsible for this traveling arch, the uh, traveling photo exhibit called Contact High. Um, Vicky used to work at Empire Management uh, back in the day, and so she brought the uh, the Bismarcky puppet. She basically saved the Bismarcky puppet from the trash because J. Rue and Little Dap were in the office and they basically were punching it and whatever. <laughs> um, so she brought it back. So she's, it was like a, like a puppy. So, so, so Vicky Toback is very responsible for, um, it's, this is an interesting story. And so the Bismarcky puppet was just kind of hanging around the office as a, as a mascot yeah. and was also kind of like indirectly how we started collecting kind of, uh, memorabilia. Right. Um, uh. but, um, the puppet was kind of around because we have goofy senses of humor you know, um, we, we decided, and because we were doing, uh, yeah, because of, I don't know if some, I don't even, I'm trying to remember how the hell did we even think about putting the puppet on the cover with, um, with the deaf squad. I can't remember, but because of that, that sort of snowballed into this idea of us, like, let's take pictures of the biz with, um, other rappers. Right. right. Um, and so, uh, that's kind of like how, how we kind of kind of got started the biz puppet was actually deteriorating at the time because it's made out of just you know it wasn't made to last it was just a prop in a music video and so some friends uh the what's her name darcy like she was a friend of ours darcy she was going to like a art school or something and one of her friends actually kind of restored the puppet like repainted it and all that kind of stuff so we kind of had a restored puppet and and um kind of had him hanging around and and we just thought it was funny to to sort of reference the me and the biz master ace cover by having people kind of take photographs with it and it kind of took on a life of its own so how does that relate to me or us i think it was just an, it was a reflection of our kind of sense of humor um you know like i'm i'm, I'm funny around them i'm not necessarily funny all the time like when i'm talking to people like like right now in this conversation i'm sure people are like snoozing if they've gotten this far but when we're together, then our energy sort of creates this like kind of bizarre, bizarro world. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. How did the books come about? The books came up, the, the Ego Trip books came about because we spent so much time working on the last issue of Ego Trip, the magazine, and because it was such a sprawling, epic, weird, creative piece of literary journalism art that um, it got the attention of, of another sort of peripheral friend, uh, Dana Alberella. Um, who really, who was also uh, a hip hop fan. She's a, her, she's also, her husband is a Todd James, the painter who used to write by the name of Reese, R-E-A-S. Um, but she was, a you know, she really enjoyed it because she's a, she grew up in New York. She's a hip hop fan and she appreciated the sort of kind of liter literary wackiness and sort of creative approach that we had done for the last issue. And she said, Hey, if you guys ever want to do a book or something like that, because she was kind of like a junior editor at St. Martin's Press, you know, like New York is the, the center of the kind of like publishing world, right? And so she she was working there and was like, if you ever have anything, um, let me know. And so 
we kind of uh, thought about things, and and Jeff Jeff Mao, uh, Chairman Mao, one of our you know one of the Ego Trip guys, yeah. was always a fan of of Dave Marsh's, and I forgot the other author's name, um, but a book by Rolling Stone called The Book of Rock Rock Lists, you know. And so again, this was us sort of looking at the things that we were already into, which in this case was was rock music, right? Um, and was like, hey, you know, us being fans of, of rap, like we could probably come up with, you know, a book of rap lists because that's all we would do was just sit around the office and make rap jokes, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and throw around rap trivia. And we all had our own individual collections of stuff and whatever. And so that was the thing. It was like, okay, let's try to come up with this, like, you know, let's, let's think of some things and some lists and whatever, you know, cause it's like, I don't know about now, but it's like, it's, it was always fun to just throw out rap lyrics because it just made you laugh, you know, yeah. like, you know, uh, like, you know, like if you walk by Burger King, you, you know, you may, you may go like, like, I like the Whopper, fuck the Big Mac. You know what I mean? Like, right. you, you know, you would say things like that. Hip hop shit. It would, it, hip hop shit. Right. And so that was what that was the kind of stuff that that we did. Even that was the kind of stuff we did before I even met those guys, right? You know, I used to make those kind of jokes with other friends. You know, it's like we'd be like, "Oh, I'm not a sucker, so I don't need a bodyguard." You know, just shit like that. Yeah. Basically, memes, right? And so we would just kind of like laugh about things, or we would say like, "Oh man," we would start to notice like the commonalities between uh, lyrics or whatever. And then so we just started collecting these, like, you know, we started ruminating on the ideas of like lists and how to aggregate like uh, uh things within the hip-hop world mm. and that was how we uh ended up writing this book and so we proposed it and because it was relatively expensive to do um that's how we got it and so the book you know ended up being kind of like this love letter to hip-hop right mm. um at the time particularly when there wasn't anything like that at the time the only books and probably I would say maybe even still, like if people attempt to write about hip hop, it's always like the same kind of like hip hop started off in the Bronx. Yeah, it's always it's either academic, it's either academic or it's like hip hop started in the Bronx when Cool Herc from Jamaica decided to place, you know. Yeah. And it's kind of like we know it. That's yeah, you know it, and it's not fun. It's not conveying like the fun of something, you know. Yeah. Like the way that we lived and talked about hip hop was the fun of it, right? Yeah. And and Just and hot. so. Yeah, exactly, right? And so that was the uh, the attraction to the book and, and getting other people to, you know, creating the list where we become uh, essentially the, the definitive sort of experts only because we're the first ones to kind of really talk about trivia and all these little minutia and these little, little uh, these things that, that people that are, that are uh, so, sort of uber fans of stuff and know all the little ins and outs. Um, that was like our attraction was to try to put that stuff together and also have con contributions from people in that world, you know, and, and we'll, we'll, you know, we could say like, well, well, we're not the experts on this. Let's talk to somebody who always talks about this and get them to make a list. And so, you know, we just pulled our connections and, and people that we knew at different record labels to try to get other, other contributors um, from the hip hop sphere, all the kind of hip hop luminaries at the time to contribute their own lists and really make this, this, this about uh, our love for the music, right? I know this girl with her own crib in isolation. She's from Puerto Rico, half black on vacation. Fine freak with thongs on, want me every week. Panties in service, the big twos make her nervous. Hey boo, here's lollipops, I'ma give them to you. Bang your nice back doors, I'ma scrape your floors. Look at your personal silk on the camcorder. Then hit bed springs, my thumbs on the tape recorder. With big cups of crystal, I'ma spank it well.
down If I lick you there, my girlfriend, I'ma tell Rock your boots and leave my style written on your cooch We rub with the man's condoms in your soft hands I got plans for booty work to catch a lap dance That's good as working, and by myself, I be jerking well, How did that list with Cool Keith come about? Uh, oh man, what was the list? I can't remember I think it uh, was top 10 spots to publicly masturbate in <laughs> <laughs> well um you know I, I, you know I, I think like whose idea is we that? would um it probably came from you know what it probably came from a conversation that i have to look because i'm not going to be 100 percent sure about right. this but like um number one we figured out we wanted to have different chapters in the book right and so we wanted to have different people contribute maybe something within a particular subject matter uh, number two, I do believe, uh, you know, back in the rap pages days, uh, that I was working with Gabe Alvarez, you know, we did an issue called the, we did an issue of rap pages that we decided cause we got bored with like just talking about rap. We wanted to think of other ways to entertain ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we would come up with these theme issues and we decided to do a comedy issue, right? Um, the, the cover was actually Bismarcky, uh, rest in peace. Yeah. But um, within the comedy issue, we just wanted to, you know, Gabe, again, is like one of the funniest dudes and most creative idea persons that, that I can imagine. And so I think at the time we wanted to get, uh, I think we had, you know, we're, we're also young and, and horny. So we're just thinking about like porn and, and whatever. And I think Gabe reached out to, am I conflating two different things? There was definitely like a, an idea of like getting the porn star, Shawn Michaels with, Sun Doobie from Funk Dubious because Funk Sun Doobie was into porn, so we got a conversation with them. But I feel like maybe we reached out to Cool Keith maybe for a sex-related thing as well because at the time I think his album was like Sex Styles was the, it was the album right. um, that he put out. So that was just on our mind, and maybe he was talking about masturbation or something. I can't, I can't remember. Yeah. I, I need to actually kind of go back. But you know, classic Cool that Keith. Said, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The cool Keith we all know and, and love. Um, but that being said, you know, we know that certain people are personalities, right? right. They're not just like, you know, that they, they have their own sort of like quirks and all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, some kind of way that was probably like how we put two and two together. And, and uh, yeah, that's <laughs> so. This season on Ego Trips, the White Rapper Show. We're on a mission to find the next white rapper who can rep hip-hop to the fullest. But it's not going to be easy, because historically, white rappers have had to walk at least eight miles uphill to make it big. That hasn't stopped anyone from trying. hip-hop wound up in the suburbs. It must have been picked up when it fell out in Snoop's cupboard. Bobby Brown is in a rage. He's a kicking up dirt in the baddest cage. So we're going to search the nation, choose ten white MCs, and ship them to the South Bronx. South Bronx. South, South Bronx. Here in the birthplace of hip hop, their love and knowledge of the culture will be put to the test. You better come with the heat. Along the way, they'll get schooled by hip hop heavyweights. Just plays. Gotta have passion. But only if you put everything into it, is it, is it gonna work for you? You did. They'll get a chance to prove their lyrical prowess. I'm like a prodigy, and I'm here to teach you. Your little dead daughter say, Daddy, why he beat you? And fight to stay in the game. Sometimes they'll triumph. Black stereotypes that blacks secretly believe are true. Large penises. Sometimes they'll trip. <laughs> that was wild right there. It's all a part of their quest to gain hood credibility, 100 Gs, and more importantly, respect. Get this man a deal right here. Man. So who will step up? 
become hip-hop's next great white hope. Because Lord knows it's lonely at the top. We got the opportunity to do the Red Rapper Show because we had gotten the opportunities to do these series of specials for VH1 because we had gotten the opportunity on the backs of the Book of Rap Lists to do uh, a book called The Big Book of Racism. Right. And that was, our, that was our De La Soul is Dead in the sense of like we didn't want to be known for this one thing anymore. And um, the subtext of Ego Trip was often about race in the sense that Ego Trip the, Ma- Ego Trip the magazine and, and collectively because we're five uh, men of color and they were all of different sort of ethnic backgrounds and, and racial backgrounds and stuff together, you know, but we were all sort of united by our, our love of hip hop. And so, um, the, you know, we would always, you know, Ego Trip even in itself was like taking the idea of Rolling Stone at that time, which would be primarily about rock and do a little bit of rap. We would just take, you know, we took the idea of like, let's do mostly rap, but then have a little bit of rock and roll in it because we're also interested in that stuff. So there was always this idea of race as a foundation for us, like creatively in terms of like how we expressed ourselves and the avenues that we could express. Right. Mm. And so, um, the, the book of racism, which begat these shows, if I can just say this real quickly, it was just sort of born out of like, okay, book of rap list did really well. De La Soul is dead. We don't want to talk about rap anymore. Let's talk about something else. And race was our sort of preoccupation. But it was also more so it was it was kind of a joke. It was going to you know, we used to joke about like, let's just do a book about how great we are. Um, and and I joked saying, like, yeah, we should call it the big book of racism, you know, and everyone kind of latched onto that. And it ended up becoming like a list version of a, a list version of race in the same way uh, uh, that the book of rap list was about rap in terms of being lists and sort of pop culture references and lists and all that kind of stuff. And so that kind of got the interest of VH1 uh, at the time and that the book actually didn't do as well as the book of rap lists, but it did get us a TV show. So, uh, you know, um, take that for what it is. And, you know, the fact that we were already sort of primed to work in television because Sasha's father was uh, uh, was had had worked in television uh, Chairman Mao had gone to NYU and studied film, so he was already well versed in like filmic writing. Gabe was also uh, a film uh, buff and also wanted to, you know, was working on scripts. So, and then myself, with my father having been worked in entertainment as well, yeah. um, uh, and the only one that wasn't was Elliot, who was a strictly rap. But we were all kind of like ready to tackle on uh, larger media because we were were interested in that stuff. And so we got these opportunities based off of um, the president of, I think, uh, Christina Norman at the time. She gave out the book of racism, the big book of racism, out as like a stocking stuffer for Christmas. Dope. At the VH1 Christmas party. Dope. And at the time, yeah, so, and, and, yeah, and at the time, like, yeah, it's super crazy. Like, and, and at the time, VH1, the, the VH1 network was, was so, uh, had found this formula for doing these kind of like pop culture, like, essentially list shows or, you know, sort of nostalgia shows or whatever, having different celebrities talk about uh, different subject matter and, and sort of remember back when we used to do this and blah, 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 blah. And so there was so much sort of pop culture, race-related, uh, you know, our, our, again, ac- anti-academic. We wanted to be able to talk mm. about things in a way that actually affects people in ways that they, they relate to, right? So, you know, we didn't want to talk about, like, if we're talking about race in, in, in popular culture, like we didn't want to talk about like 
you know, a, a Sambo dolls or, you know, you know, picking any imagery from like the thirties and forties and whatever. We wanted to talk about how does, how is race played out in contemporary society, but with a sense of humor and sort of sarcasm and sort of compile all these, these views about race, uh, uh, in list form, you know, like, Oh, to sort of explain like why different groups feel the way they do about society, because this is, here's aggregated information that says like, this is why, you know, here's a bunch of movies that are anti-Arab, you know, like, of course, Arab people feel pissed about their representation because here's a, here's a whole list of it, but we'll, and then we'll, we'll talk about the, we'll, and we'll, we'll, uh, you know, but we'll be sarcastic in our, in our sort of, uh, rundown of these things. Right. Cause, cause you know, you, you gotta make it funny and compelling. Um, but then that, the success of those things begat, um, you know, they wanted to do something larger, VH1, and Sasha, being the genius, kind of was like, you know, reality shows were, were big then, and, you know, asked us again, like, if we ever had any ideas, and Sasha kind of joked, like, you know, riffing off the kind of real world sort of competition shows or Survivor or whatever, you know, like, what if we put all these aspiring white rappers in a house in the Bronx, <laughs> you know, sort of, you know, let them sort of, uh, sort of battle it out and sort of fend for each other. Cause like at the time, the premise, it was based off the idea that like Eminem right. was like the great, you know, the great white hope. And, you know, Eminem had been a bit, a little bit silent, uh, you know, at that time. Interesting. Um, and so like, who's the next going to, who's going to be the next great white rapper as a, you know, again, as a tongue in cheek, but, but commentary. Right. Right. Um, and so that was the opportunity, you know, that, that came to us to, to develop that show. And um, because it's an absurd concept, we had to just kind of go absurd with the whole, all the challenges and the presentation and everything. Like, um, we're absurdists, or Ego Trip, we were absurdists. And, um, you know, a few of us were very influenced by like, or I, I would say I, me, I'm very influenced and a big fan of like Monty Python. Oh, really? Yeah, man. And so, you know, that was, you know, I kind of likened us to a little bit of a journalistic version of them. Yeah, Um, I can see it. I can see it. Now that I think about that, that's interesting. So that's a, that's, that's an influence for you back then. That's how you. Yeah, man. You know, those are, those are the Beatles of fucking comedy, dude. Like they're incredible. So, you know, to, to take that sort of surreal, not like I said, not even surrealist, absurdist sort of point of view and apply it through the lens of hip hop, you know, um, you know, we, we, the set that we built was this, uh, you know, referencing a lot of different parts of New York and, you know, we had a bodega in the house and all this other kind of stuff. And, you know, they'd get, if you get penalized or whatever, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to put somebody on ice. So we put them in the ice chest, you know, the ice box that would be outside of like a corner store, like a deli. But, you know, we called it the ice ice room right. or something like that. That's dope. You know, so, you know to, to make fun of like vanilla ice and like all, this, you right. know, all these little hip hop in jokes and all this other kind of stuff. Um, and then each episode, because we had to figure out the arc of each episode, like you don't know who's going to survive each episode, but you kind of have to say like, OK, the way that they do reality shows is like you shoot an episode a week. Right. Right. And so uh, you come up with these challenges and what's the theme of each episode and then you kind of progress. Right. And so we ended up kind of doing like the history of hip hop. Um, So it starts off in the Bronx and then like the I'm sorry, because I forget, but like maybe the next episode might be about like the 
era of sort of like like black consciousness era right and then maybe the next episode the thematic is about the gangster era you know even if it's really subtle um and then we would come up with challenges that were based around those sort of thematics and stuff and put these uh, aspiring white rappers through it and um through these different challenges and um you know but we wanted it to be overtly funny and so like you know prince paul who was yeah. a friend of ours you know was was had uh you know decided to be the the uh the co-host and then mc search who's uh you know we need we wanted to have a credible white rapper to be the host of the show so mc search from third base who also has a great sense of humor you know he became the the host of the show and a little bit of a father sort of mentor figure um for the for the for the rappers on the show so we had like you know this kind of like interracial buddy comedy kind of stuff happening this absurdist sort of like challenges hip-hop history you know, and then interesting personalities that people, you know, maybe initially you think like you're going to, they're going to be poked fun at and we were poking fun at them, but we're not mean to them, you know, and, and they became, you know, everyone, the sympathetic qualities and characteristics of, of our participants just emerged because they're interesting people. Right. right. And so um, you really care about them as they're getting through these challenges and, and, and I don't, I, you know, I don't think anyone felt humiliated. They, you know, they kind of knew that like they were, uh, anomalies, so to speak at the time of being like white people who were into hip hop and who wanted to participate in hip hop. Um, and so the, the conceit of like, well, if you want to be white, you got to pay your dues. Yeah. Right. Um, and, it's an accountability. And it's an accountability just to show some respect yeah. for things doesn't mean that people didn't go through their own thing and i think that that's you know that's also become very clear that like you know just because you didn't grow up in the bronx and whatever it doesn't mean you don't have hardships i think that like it's a lesson it was the show was also a lesson for people that didn't know what the history of hip-hop was Mm. you know kind of going you know basically going back to like hip-hop was started in the bronx with two turns you know the thing that we were against but you know it was it was a lesson also for other people uh, to just kind of get this sort of um, revisionist <laughs> yeah. uh, alternate, alternate universe version of, of, of the arc of, of hip-hop history. Um, and of course, it would become one of BH1's most successful shows of all time. So again, another piece of history, man. Talk about leading into a style and aesthetic for Complex Magazine. What was your approach and how did you carry your sensibilities putting together an issue? Oh man, you're a completist. That's pretty good, man. I'm... I'm Big up, big up yourself. Appreciate um, you. Yeah, man. Um, for a complex, uh, the opportunity came to the opportunity came up to work with complex because uh, I was doing a lot of freelance work at the time after Ego Trip kind of breaks up, and uh, it was an interesting period uh, economically because this is like at the tail end of like sort of like was it 2008, 9, 10, something like that, where the economy is just going south because of, you know, real estate bubbles and all this other kind of stuff. And um, I kind of came in as like a substitute teacher uh, as an art, because the art director had left. And our former Ego Trip intern, Noah Callahan Bever, who was the editor at Complex, was like, well, you know, maybe Brent can, can wrap this up. So I, I inherited the magazine, I think, at a point where um, it's really like at the tail end, I feel, of a particular creative approach, you know, um, where, you know, there's a lot of stuff where 
there was the idea of like artist collaborations. I, like to me, this stuff started getting stale, but like, uh, like here's a photograph and have somebody paint over it or whatever. Right. This was kind of like, this is kind of, to me, that stuff had run its course. And then the next kind of design wave, unfortunately was the kind of heritage, you know, ye old, whatever kind of vibe, um, which I really hated. Um, because you know, I'm like, yo, it's 2000, whatever. Why is everything looking like it's turn of the century, last century. Right. Um, but, uh, eventually, you know, trends kind of come and go. And so I had to kind of navigate that. Um, I think the, the, the magazine from a credibility quote unquote standpoint had started to, uh, diminish, I think, because it had started, you know, the, uh, how can I explain this? The interests of the audience started to move elsewhere. Okay. Um, or, or, or mature. Right. And so we had to kind of navigate that, uh, you know, that sort of perspective for maybe a couple of years. And then what started developing was this interest in like fashion really, you know, um, where, where, you know, this, this, this collision of like street culture starts meeting higher end, uh, culture. Right. And so that works for me in the sense that like, it's more cleaner design centric, I guess. Right. And so, um, that was where I was like, okay, I can see this wave coming. This is where things are going. Like, this is where we need to go. And this is closer to what the directive really was. When I had first started working at complex a few years earlier, it's just that the culture wasn't, uh, the, the larger design culture wasn't amenable to that. Right. It was exploring, like I said, hand lettered, you know, thirties type and all sort of, you know, people, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so the aesthetic started to move in that direction. And so I was like, okay, this is something that I feel more comfortable with or that I can really appreciate more because it's coming from a, it's, it's newer, right. Um, and, and more modern. And so that was the goal. It was like, and then, you know, it took a while to really build, I had some great designers that I worked with, like in, like in terms of our art department, um, and then through attrition, people leave and stay, or, you know, they, you know, they leave and whatever. And it's kind of, I had to like sort of build up a team of people and <clears throat> it just takes a while to build up a good squad. And so, um, you know, we got to the point where we picked a team of really, you know, of, of, of we had really great sort of designers, uh, available who wanted to, who, who, who were also kind of like, they were very good designers. They needed guidance. Um, and they also, but they also executed things in a way that was a lot more, um, they executed, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to diminish the, the, the previous people. I don't mean, I don't want to sound like that, but they just executed things in a way that was very, uh, in tune with what was going on. And I think that they had, they would bring their own spin on things and, but they just needed a good coach. Yeah. Right. And so now I get the opportunity to, uh, be a coach and manage people and be like, Hey, you know, like, let's try this or whatever, because they're still like coming at things from a very like superficial, like, Oh, it needs to look like this. I was like, yeah, but where's the concept behind this? Like, let's start thinking more about like, mm. you know, cause this is the generation that like now they're just all they see stuff. They see stuff out of context. Right. So you see stuff on the internet. You don't know that, uh, this font is referencing this particular era. You don't know why there's this particular treatment, you know? Mm. So I, you know, or, or, what makes a strong like visual uh, concept. It's a little bit hard to explain, but like 
that was the sort of role that I fell into and be able to sort of like, it's great because being a fan of design myself, um, it's hard to work on a design and also sort of work on the management of something. Like if you're like, if you, when you're doing everything, um, it's, it's just, you have to switch brains, you know, cause it's like, if I'm in a business meeting, I have to have my head in one place. And then if I actually am designing, I have to put my head in another. So being the art director and then eventually like the creative director, there's like, okay, I can turn off this thing. I don't have to actually sit down in front of the, the computer and design necessarily and work out these problems. Other people are kind of working out those problems. I can just come and look and be like, no, you've done the work for me. Now I can see that this doesn't work. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I think I'm a pretty decent critic. Right. And so, um, I was able to, uh, it was a good, it was, it was a good chance for me to help have, see other really creative minds, create things to shape, shape the direction of things and be a mentor to people, um, at the same time. Put so, that into um, practice. and I put that into practice. Right. Yeah. And so seeing just where the sort of streetwear culture was going, it was like, okay, now let's try to codify, codify whatever the word is like right. together. And, 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 instead of it being this kind of haphazard, uh, approach that may be complex. And again, not, a, not a of disc, course. but I'm just, you know, um, prior to me, like this is, this is a chance to try to do something really consistent and, and like, cause you know, you, you do stuff, if you're a creative person, you make something and then you just want to make something else. And like, no, we're doing a magazine. We got to like create something, a system and, and, and I want to get them into the point where it's like, no, we have to do this all the same. We have to do this the same every time, but then we have to sort of play within the rules, right? right. You can change it up, but you still got to play within the rules. And so um, that's what we did. There's, there's that is the, the design interior of the magazine, and then there's the covers. And the covers, the approach for the covers was to just how do we make an impact uh, online now? Because you know, in the same way that like the, the, you know, like what was it? The Kim Kardashian break the internet yeah. paper magazine cover, you know, it's like, how do we make these, how do we make these impactful moments, um, online? And, and that was the, the, the main thing that myself and, and, and Noah, uh, the editor, Noah Callahan Bever, right. we were like, you know, cause now we're, now we're talking about not, not a, a print world. We're talking about an online world and we have to make, you know, we need to get, uh, page views. Right. And that's just, this is just the business. And so we wanted to come up with strong, shareable images, you know, and it kind of, you know, Noah was a fan of um, the, uh, the magazine covers that I had done back at Rap Pages because that was the same sort of directive. I want to create kind of iconic, uh, singular narrative imagery, you know, and so that was what we did at Complex. Speaking of imagery, iconic imagery and Complex, what can you tell me about the classic cover of Complex magazine with Kendrick Lamar being surrounded by these rejected ideas? What was the thought process for that one? Oh, man, that was such a great shoot um, for so many reasons. Um, so we're coming off um, uh, Good Kid, Mad City, right? Nice. And, and um, no one really knew what he was going to be doing next because, you know, his previous albums don't even sound like that record. Right. And so um, and they didn't really I don't even know if they knew exactly where that record was going to go. But we were, um, you know, but we got the chance to shoot him for the cover and to try to generate a little bit of early excitement for that for that album. And not knowing exactly what the album was going to sound like and, and all that kind of stuff. We were still trying to think of like a, a theme for the shoot. And uh, 
Kendrick's lyrics clearly are, 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 that's his, that's, he's a wordsmith, right? And so we wanted to make some sort of analogy to sort of all these kind of great writers and, and, and stuff like that in history. Dope. And, um, but how do you do it in a way that makes sense for his world? Um, we ended up shooting at this um, place in Los Angeles that's no longer open, unfortunately. It was open then, um, which is like an old school, basically a juke joint, you know, um, uh, called Jerry's Flying Fox. And um, it was one of those places that had like orange leather furniture and, you know, wood paneled interiors. And it's kind of just like the 60s, 70s. Man, it was such a dope space. Um, you know, nice. it's the kind of thing you like, like, you know, whiskey only, you know what I mean? Like that kind of a spot, right? Yeah. And whiskey and good music. Right. Um, and, and so we ended up shooting there and, and, uh, cause it's just like the, 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 the best environment, um, to, to sort of make a connection between like this old LA kind of like players club sort of space. And, uh, with this guy who's this sort of modern sort of poet and, um, yeah, so so all those things kind of kind of stemmed from that, and it was cool because the day that we shot there, even though we had rented it out during the day, it didn't stop them from having their locals and regulars coming in. <laughs> so at a certain point, you know, because it was Taco Tuesday, and <laughs> <laughs> people were going to sit up and and you know uh, sell some tacos like and, and drink some you know some some fine alcohol. Um, so people kind of showed up and they, you know, they, they were familiar with his name, Kendrick Lamar. So they're like, Oh, who's that new bloat over there? Is that Kendrick Lamar? You know, like, and so people kind of kept their distance, um, while we were doing the shoot, but they were really excited that he was there. And, um, you know, he was, he wasn't, uh, you know, he was there to, 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 he was, he was very quiet to be oh, honest. Yeah? Um, yeah, yeah. He's kind of a reserved person, right. um, in that environment. Um, but you know, he, he, he was very cooperative and actually during the shoot, so, uh, B plus, uh, Brian cross and Eric Coleman, uh, from Mochilla, um, you know, they were, you know, they're actively involved in the Los Angeles hip hop scene. Right. So they've shot a lot of stuff for stones throw. Like Eric is the one that shot the mad villain cover with, a, you know, uh, doom with the, the mask on yeah. and, and all that sort of Iconic. stuff. Iconic. Yes, and you know, B Plus has shot quite a few things uh, as well, um, like the DJ Shadow introducing cover and all that sort of stuff. And um, they're also, you know, yeah, just entrenched with all those folks. And so they just were, yeah. you know, they're they're always they always have music with them. And I think Eric had decided to just play some beats from uh, Knowledge, right? Um, and one of the just just to play some beats, he was just like, yeah, you know, this is this is a homie. If anything sounds interesting, you know, you know, holler. Sure. And, you know, so, I, you know, I, I forget, but one of the tracks is, uh, it ended up being on To Pimple Butterfly. Uh, and it was from that, from our photo session, you know, from, from Kendrick just hearing uh, this, these demos. And, and uh, they, he was like, yo, I felt that. Incredible. He was feeling that. Yeah. History. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we shoot history, we make history. What could he tell me about that cover? For Wale and Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> um, Wale, funny enough, was his. I guess Jerry Seinfeld's wife is a huge Wale fan, right? That's crazy. And 
Yeah, which was super nuts, right? And Wale at the time was really he was he wanted to be on the cover of Complex so bad, and you know we couldn't necessarily justify from a numbers because it's a numbers game. Um, we couldn't justify giving him a cover, right? And so he had wanted a cover, he wanted a cover, but because he had this relationship with Jerry Seinfeld because Seinfeld's wife was a fan. Um, uh, you know, some, you know, like maybe the publicist, I forgot exactly how it was, you know, we, we catch wind of this and, um, it turns out like Seinfeld was open to doing one, uh, he was, he was open to participating in press for Wale's album for one outlet only. Right. And so we, <laughs> because complex has this history of putting, people from two different worlds, so to speak, yeah. uh, yeah. cover, you know, cause we've had like, uh, prior to me being there, like, uh, um, like Andre 3000 with, um, oh man, I'm, I forget people's names. Um, what's the guy from, uh, Ron Burgundy from, uh, uh Will Ferrell. Ah. Right? So there's a cover with like Andre 3000 and Will Ferrell together, or there's a cover with like RZA with Seth Rogen, you know? So that's been a, you know, that that's, that's not unusual for complex to do that. Um, and so it made total sense for the complex world to have like Wale, uh, with Jerry Seinfeld. And so it was also like, oh man, this is an incredible moment. Cause like Seinfeld is like, you know, inarguably like one of the greats. Right? right. And he was like, so we, so we were also wanting to get some video content also, cause that's also the name of the game. Um, and, uh, I think because it was like, well, what do you do with Jerry Seinfeld? Like, you know, it's a little bit like it's Seinfeld's world, man. Like he's just sitting at a diner talking. Like that's, that's his thing. Like what, you know, we're not going to get Seinfeld to, you know, we're not going to get him like in a hot air balloon or something crazy or whatever. We're just, you know, we're just going to let Seinfeld be Seinfeld, but we can kind of make the, the world interesting or whatever. So, you know, we just decided to do this really simple, again, kind of inspired by seventies album covers, like very sort of uh, composed, picture of them kind of just side by side, you know, like a profile of them talking at a, at a, at a dining, you know, at a, in a diner. But then if you look, there's little Easter eggs and, yeah. and you know, you know, there's a guy in a, you know, in a, in a night suit, like in the back, you know, reflected in the background and, and stuff like that. So we just wanted to make it a little bit odd. When you look at it, you're like, something's not quite right. The classic lines you love. Are you still master of your domain? <laughs> yeah. Significant shrinkage. The classic moments you'll never forget. The dingo ate your baby. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yo, yo, ma. My boys can swim. It's no wonder that Seinfeld is called the number one greatest show of all time. You're going to be the first pirate. Well, I don't want to be a pirate. Seinfeld. Get Weeknights at 6.30 on my TV 8 It transcends, like you say, it really transcends a place and time, much like the Kid Cuddy cover you did as well. Ah, thank you. Well, which one? We did, like, Cuddy, like, five the one times. Where we <laughs> right, right. The one where we step in out and it's the door is very much, like I say, transcendental. Oh, where he, like, is it the one where he's tearing the cover? Right, is that the right. One? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was my first cover. That was my first official cover. Oh, really? In, ter in terms of, like, that's my idea and, like, okay, like, because... When I first started the, you know, when I came in as like a substitute teacher, like I said, I had to finish up the, there was a cause, Lindsay Lohan cover. There was three covers. There was three covers that came out at the same time. So they did three different, the same issue with three different covers. And I just needed to sort of like guide that to finish. Um, it was, yeah, it was cause of Lindsay Lohan. 
uh, Jose Parla with TI and Todd James slash Reese with, uh, man, I forgot the guy's name. Um, this other artist, um, this other musician, but my first cover was my idea was that kid Cudi cover, you know, um, just to do something kind of like impactful and, and different and stuff. So to have him and, and you know, we, the styling is fantastic. You know, the suit is great. The photography is great. And we just wanted to do something conceptual. So the idea of him kind of tearing the cover off in this kind of surreal way was, was fun. That, that goes back to like the thinking that I used to do at rap pages where I wanted to kind of do these high concept sort of covers. collaboration with uh, uh, Dave Viorente, also known as Chino, who was uh, the graffiti editor for the Source magazine back in the day. And he's nice. also uh, co-authored a few uh, books regarding graffiti. So we have something sort of special uh, collaboratively um, coming out, hopefully early 2022. Um, and then uh, a few other projects that I really don't want to talk about or I can't really discuss, but then I have some sort of entrepreneurial projects, like just starting a couple of businesses uh, that I'm working on as well. Dope. Dope. Yeah. Just, you know, the idea is like to do, like, I, like to just do new things, you know, like I, I, I'm known for doing graphic design and art direction and stuff like that. And it's not, I, I love that, but I also want to do other, other, other things. So um, it's, it's time, you know, you're on this planet for a limited amount of time and I want to express myself in, in all kinds of different ways. And that's, that's what I have planned. Thanks so much for taking time out to do this, man. Yeah, sure, man. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate uh, being asked. I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when fly fidelity updates because it's so great, but I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh Oh, you're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My peoples, are you with me where you were?